You're listening to Girls Gone Canon, covering his dark materials. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon Reads His Dark Materials, Episode 21, The Amber Spyglass, Chapters 17 through 19. I am one of your hosts, Eliana. And I am another one of your hosts, Chloe. You know, for those listening, you might be listening to this in the future, the present, the past, but Eliana and I are recording this on a very magical day in the U.S., in the States, which is Turkey Day, Thanksgiving, the day we give thanks to the giant birds, the Tua Turkey, the Turkey Loppy. The Turkey Loppy. (laughs) Yes, I am so thankful for the Turkey Loppy, for everything that the Turkey Loppy has given me. They are God. not. They are it's not quite special. like the tuolapi, which are, you know. Sometimes I read the term tuolapi and I think duolipa. If you look at the word, <laughs> look it up. It's kind of uh, similar. I'm gonna need to see what the tuolapi look like in season three of His Dark Materials. I'm interested, yeah. Because I'm gonna Photoshop duolipa's head on that shit so fast. <laughs> yes. The duolipa. The tuolipa. Uh, truly, I don't know. You know, we we talk about the tuolapi today in the first chapter that we'll get to, mm-hmm. and. uh I now I'm going to pronounce it the Dua Lipa for the rest of my life. Thank you for this, Eliana, this present, this Thanksgiving gift. It's spelled almost the same. But yeah, the turkey loppy is different. They they are actually weaker than the Tua Lopi, which are predators, but the turkey, turkey loppy, they are a prey. And de- delicious. They They're are delicious. delicious. They are indeed. Wow. I'm the only one who have exploited... Yeah. The turkey loppy already within two minutes of their creation. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> well, we're excited to be spending uh, our Thanksgiving right now with you, with you listeners, bringing you his dark materials. And we're thankful for you. We, we are thankful for you all for tuning in each month and listening. Uh, so we have a couple announcements up top for you before we jump in today. We will not have a December episode, and I know that sounds disappointing, so to make up for that horrible, sad statement, we're gonna do two in January. That's right, one at the front, one at the end. We'll open up 2022 with His Dark Materials, and not just open it up with His Dark Materials, we have a special guest joining us in January. We do, yes. We're gonna hit from the front, then hit from the back. We got... We got Cassidy helping us kick off the year. Our good friend Cassidy. I'm excited because Cassidy is our bird watcher friend. Cassidy is very orny, right? (laughs) No. (laughs) But yes, Cassidy is our bird watcher friend. And also, in a way, our red panda friend. Cassidy loves to tag me and Lo and... Every time he finds a new red panda picture. Yes, our red panda-ographer. Yes. You know. Resident zoologist. Resident Actually kind orny of. person. Yes. Yeah. But they're, they're always bringing us pictures of birds. We thought, why not bring words of birds to our friends? So Cassie will be joining us. And uh, especially because I want to say next month, the first three chapters, 2021-22, 20, we'll be covering 
have some birds of their own in them, right? Some harpies. But mm. that's a little spoilery. I'm not going to tell you much more about that because first, Eliana's going to give you our spoiler policy. This is our very loose spoiler policy in which maybe we were good at keeping to it at the beginning. <laughs> but as we near the end, I mean, again, honestly, if you haven't just powered through the book, yeah, like it's been like <laughs> a couple of years, so I'm just kind of surprised. I would have just given up and finished it. And been like, those girls are going too slow. So we have everything up until the point of these chapters of the Amber Spyglass in the main body of the episode. And then afterwards, we have a discussion in which we spoil everything else, such as the books of dust, the novellas, and like the last few chapters of this book. But there aren't very many of those left. Yeah, as we get to the end, it's uh, it's what we've been building up to. Yeah. If you've been reading along with us, you're really brave for not skipping ahead and finishing, like Eliana said, because we're at the point of the book where it's getting, it gets pretty good. I could not put the book down when I got to this part of the mm-hmm. book originally. So. so, we will try to stay on track with that, as well as, of course, we will talk about the novellas, the books of dust, all the good stuff. Uh, in that discussion and I know we won't go too heavy into it but there's some really cool stuff in here I found a couple connections so of course we will be covering three chapters today that is chapter 17 oil and locker 18 the suburbs of the dead and 19 Lyra and her death I really like these chapters a lot and I, I especially love 19 and But before we get into that, we do want to point out, as you all know, and as we pointed out with Cassidy, how how does Cassidy share these red panda pictures with all of us? On our Discord, if you are a patron in the Thunder Tier and above, you have access to our Discord in which once a month we do have a happy hour slash brunch. We have not yet set the date for, for, for December, though. That'll be coming very soon for our patrons. And, you know, another exciting thing that we're going to be doing next month is every month patrons get a bonus episode, a special bonus episode of extra content that we uh, serve up in a dish for you. Serve up just like the turkey loppy. And I'm just kidding. You shouldn't eat them. Uh, Next month, we're doing something a little different. We're going to be covering The Song of Achilles, a book by Madeline Miller. And it's a great book, very sad, very wonderful about Patroclus and Achilles and their journey and some of the stuff that happens during the war with them. I really, really, really recommend you read it. I think you'll appreciate it. And we're going to talk about it for patrons in the Stranger Tier and above next month. Yeah, I'm actually super excited to do this episode because I have never read these books. I have intended to, and this is finally, you know, giving me the push that I need to read these, so... Very excited. And I I think that a couple of other people, they don't know that they're excited for us to read these books, but they are, such as, for example, our friend Zainab. Yes, Zainab was, that was really crazy because I do not believe Zainab knew. No, she doesn't. She must have just like had a a thing in her heart that said, the girls are going to do this. Indeed. It was amazing. Indeed. So amazing. I, I, it just seems like it's right. So I'm excited to really do these books. You're going to love. I think I, I, think I, I, I am. I just know you are. I know You're gonna I You're going to love this book. I know I cried I very hard. You're going to cry. Oh, can't okay. <laughs> Great. Bitch. <laughs> I can't well, wait I for mean, you to we're cry. Gonna cry. We're going to cry like what? In the next few episodes of. I don't think I'm going to cry this one, but I could be surprised. I cried last. last I could come close. Amber Spyglass episode, so. 
yeah, next episode are going to be some tears. And if Eliana edits it, she's leaving them in. I know she will. So keep an ear and an eye out for those tears in your stream next month. <laughs> I'm just mean. Uh, I'm like, it's sad, people though. are crying. Like really... uh, all right. Well, without further ado, let's jump on in to chapter 17, Oil and Lacquer, which starts yeah. with a quote from Genesis. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Yes, my my commentary on this is, ah, yes, subtle. First of all, here it's spelled S-U-B-T-I-L, which, S-U-B-T-I-L, S-U-B? which is, uh, yeah, S-U-B? right. S-U-B? Like, is Eb a new letter? What is Eb? Oh, I haven't had coffee. <laughs> just, um, it's spelled S-U-B-T-I-L, which is fun, you know, mixing it up with uh, that that older english spelling not quite old english and then, that's old with an e yes old with an e and so it, it it's fun because we had a book called the subtle knife and we have a subtle knife so then this is a subtle change in yes. the verse oh is it a subtle, is a subtle it? change it's a very subtle change yeah tell me because this isn't i mean it depends on what bible you're reading right so this yeah. is genesis 3 1 uh so i'm sure pullman chose the most antique looking bible i'm just kidding uh one of the the versions of this the the fuller version now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field that the lord god had made and he said to the woman did god really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden the woman answered the serpent we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden uh i think the full passage is very interesting it's interesting because the serpent is kind of provoking eve right and so some biblical interpretations look at this as the serpent provoking eve to think oh god's not being fair but Mm. pullman reworks this in the context of this chapter right mary learns and works to harvest the fruit that god's provided Mm. or the dust that god is providing in this kind of scenario on her own throughout the chapter she learns the ways of the earth uh the ways of what the zalifs the mulefa are able to give her what their land has, what she's able to kind of harvest and use from that land. And they help her as she kind of helps them and they reap and enjoy mutually the fruit they grew, right? For Mary, it's the oil and lacquer mirror that she creates or the, the amber spyglass, really, uh, that she sees the miracle of dust or seraph with. So from that viewpoint, it's interesting that this passage questions the fairness of God. Uh, but what biblical analysis of Genesis does usually ignore is why did God make the fucking fruit if he doesn't fucking want it to be shared with all of his fucking children equally? Wouldn't he be like, don't eat this fruit, it's for no one? Like, why would he be like, don't? And then in the other context of schemes, maybe, right? Uh, I don't know, Mary's seeing exactly that, right? Like, she's learning, wait a second, dust's beautiful, actually? Like, this is beautiful? Like, dust isn't bad or sinful, it's fucking everywhere, and everyone fucking has it around them. Uh, and we'll also kind of see some of this passage from Genesis recontextualized from the Mulefa themselves with their own history and folklore, right? With the hole being burst through the seed pod instead of the actual fruit in the Bible. So very clever, very well done how he uses this quote at the top of the chapter to really put us into it. Absolutely. That's a great, that's a great extrapolation of this quote and how it fits into the rest of this chapter in Mary's story. Uh, the serpent winding around the trees, you know, she's playing the serpent and, and she's playing in this chapter, right? She's playing as she has to construct a mirror to catch shadows. Uh, 
She does describe it as that way. And the Malefa have very little metal, as we've learned, as we learn. Uh, it's forged and found in rivers and elsewhere, and the Malefa prefer to make things from wood, stone, cord, shell, and horn. And actually, when the Malefa marry, they exchange bright strips of copper and bend it around <laughs> the base of their horns, not unlike a ring. And because of this, they find Mary's Swiss knife extremely fascinating. Atal, her good friend, most of all, uh, she shows them all the different attachments, such as, for example, the magnifying glass, and uses the magnifying glass to burn a daisy design into a branch. And watching the smoke, she thinks, you know, if this ends up becoming fossilized, a scientist who finds it in 10 million years will still find shadows on it. There would still be shadows on it. And I was kind of wondering why a daisy, right? Well, first of all, I'm sure it's like easy and fun. But also, here's a here's a fun little tidbit that the English daisy is also commonly used to be known as Mary's rose. Hmm. This is I didn't Mary. Know that actually, yeah, that is Mary. Good co- good connection. And like daisies from Celtic legend, they're supposed to symbolize purity and innocence mm. too. Like, God would sprinkle daisies over the earth to cheer up parents who lost children. So, interesting that not only is it Mary, but it's also innocence, right? Purity. It's a little ironic for Mary. Right. The serpent. Atal asks her what she's dreaming of, and Mary tries to explain it all to them. She doesn't really expect Atal to understand, but Atal does. Atal says the Zalif call it something similar to their word for light, what she's seeking with this glass, saying the words slowly. Mm. Like the light on the water when it makes small ripples at sunset, and the light comes off in bright flakes. We call it that, but it is a make-like. Make-like was their term for metaphor. I really like the term make-like. Oh, it's the new term we're using all the time. (laughs) It's no longer metaphors. Like, oh, Eliana's make-like last episode about this was really great. Absolutely. Um, We're gonna kill it. (laughs) Use it so much like turkey lappy. Um... So, the dust encompasses so many different ideas, which I think is is really fun. And, for example, we see dust referred to as shadows, right? Especially in the subtle knife. And it's also confirmed in Mary's exchanges with the cave that dust is the same as dark matter, which, you know, dark matter is like this real-life hypothetical matter that inspired Philip Pullman in the creation of the series. But throughout this ma- chapter, we're seeing that dust, you know, which is usually referred to with this very, like, dark language, right? Like, I mean, literally, dark matter and shadows. Suddenly we see that the Malefa are really likening it to light, right? And that's their term for it. And so we also see Mary using a lens that examines it as a sort of, like, the the language that's used uh, kind of puts it within, like, wave-like properties. And whereas mm-hmm. before dust i mean the very term itself right it, it's described as a particle it's called the ruzikov particles in the first portion of the story so just as light acts as both a wave and a particle you know that wave particle duality and i think it's kind of fun to see all of these concepts that are being played with in you know how much dust encompasses yeah and coming back to kind of that look at the lens i love how I, it feels like such kind of a monotonous chapter for anyone that doesn't enjoy this, right? Like if you don't enjoy Pullman's work and if you don't enjoy books or things or happiness, uh, but no, like it would from the outer eye, like a chapter about a woman making 
a mirror, right? Doing the layers and layers of bullcrap to make this thing for several days doesn't sound that interesting, but it's also like discussing refracting lenses as we're about to get into, like the objective lens and then the smaller eyepiece lens that are used every day for science, for glasses. Eliana, you know, you have four eyes, you get it. I know, I'm so weak. Yeah, I think you're advanced, but... Oh, thank you. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm ages behind you without them. With your perfect Maybe. eyesight. Oh, no, <laughs> it's so hard, Chloe. Ages behind. Uh... Most of all, the the kind of thing with the lens going on makes me think about refracting telescopes. Uh, mm. They work by using the two lenses to focus light, and it makes it so it looks like an object is closer to you than it really is. Mm. And mirrors of this shape, differently but similarly, accomplish the goal by bending light, except they do it by reflecting the light instead of bending it as it passes through, like what lenses do. So it's interesting because it's almost like when she makes the two sheets here as we get to this, uh, it, it, it turns into what she uses it as, as a mirror at first to bend the light and have it pass between the lenses. So really interesting and interesting to look back at some of the science that we've already seen used and some of the machinery already used in the story compared to this absolutely and it's kind of a little reminiscent not in the way that like telescopes are but like uh tools that help us with light for example uh i mean that's how the whole series starts off right and and it's called Mm -hmm. out a little in this chapter in regards to lord asriel and that photogram I would even add uh, there's something about the duality of the two lenses being used that reminds me of the two metal alloys used in the machine to sever at Bullvanger, mm. as well as Azriel's machine. Interesting. Something about the two, you know, just having the dual pieces involved. We got two, we got two kids. Got an Adam and Eve. Maybe. Maybe. Is that is that the spoiler? I don't know. No one knows. I mean, she's been called Eve throughout this whole thing, so it goes to assumption. So Atal says that this is actually how we knew that Mary was like you and not like the Grazers, even though you're so hideous. Uh, she actually <laughs> literally says this, more or less, because all the Malefa have this light thing surrounding them, and the word is pronounced shroff with a left flickward Oh, I, I flick to the right. With a left word flick of the trunk. Uh, and Mary is beyond psyched about this, asking where it comes from. And Natal says it comes from them and from the oil. The great seed pod meals where they grow up. Or when they when they all grow up. Without the trees, the shroff vanishes. So with the wheels and the oil, it stays with them. Again, coming back to that machine in Bullvanger, right? Like mm. the separation of your demon and the separation of the dust. This is, uh, the, the science is happening here. I'm getting the science. I understand it all. There's a great line here. Again, Mary had to keep herself from becoming incoherent. Yeah. <laughs> Such a great line. Like, I know that this is scientific and cultural and linguist, like dreamland, right? What Mary stumbled into. And several times through this chapter, she's borderline, like, standing the Mulefa. She's like, wow, I'm a huge scientist nerd. Uh, This is totally a dreamland for her, just learning everything in this rich culture that's getting kind of unraveled in front of us. Absolutely. And it's not just, like, any, any, like, science. It is 
her area of focus, right? Because she was studying shadows and she's like, how exciting for me. I get to continue, I don't know, my thesis or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, without meaning to. Guess it's gonna go. How exciting. Mary had begun to think children and adults react and attract shadows differently. Lyra had called shadows from her world dust. Whatever it was, this question, it had to do with the great change in human history symbolized in the story of Adam and Eve, with the temptation, the fall, and original sin. Now we're talking. Now we're getting into the meat of the sandwich. Mm-hmm. 30,000 years ago, something happened to birth shadow particles, development and evolution, something to make the human brain ideal to amplify the effects. Atal tells her there have been Mulefa for 33,000 years. Yes, Atal explains that they have history, memories, and wakefulness since they had the shroff. Before that, they remembered nothing. They discovered how to use the wheels, a creature with no name, discovered a seed pod, and she began to play, but then saw a snake coiling itself through the seed pod. The story goes that the snake said, What do you know? What do you remember? What do you see ahead? The Zalif said, Nothing, nothing, nothing. And the snake told her to put her foot through the hole where he had been in the seed pod. And the oil entered her blood, helping her see clearly, and she immediately saw the straw. And her and her kin were able to identify one another against the grazers, name themselves, and teach their children about the straw as well. I do have to say, Eliana's not flicking her trunk when she says it. She's oh, sorry. She's it, right? Well, I flicked it the wrong way the last time. I was like, clearly I don't know my right from my left. I would struggle so hard. I, I don't know my right from my left. It's actually true. You just gotta... I do that. Um... I do that all the time. Chloe's doing <laughs> oh, the no. thing where you have to hold up, like, the make an L shape with your hands to figure out your right and your left. And I have to do that motion sometimes. It's really, really sad because you're not... My only best friend who has to do that. That's I'm your, worried. That's your thing, right? Eva. Eva is also the other person you that very, does that, just so you know. You have very, a very specific taste in friends in which you cannot be with people. You know they're right from my left. I am only best friends with uh, only children who are women that are left-handed. Good for you. What great people to choose. <laughs> I, I bet Mary Malone's left-handed. I bet she uh, is. I hope she is. It's my new headcanon. <laughs> So, by following the snake's advice, the Mulefa gained Adam's knowledge, his capacity for naming things, and also kind of, as we'll see at some point, for telling stories, actually, as we're learning now. Satan basically said in this story, what if God was really hiding this awesome oil from everyone because then they could be immortal too, lol, uh, which is the foundation for, like, everything in the world. Right? Like, what if somebody had a huge store of resources that would fix all the problems for everybody, and they decided no one else should have it? Yep. Hmm. 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 What could it mean? What could it all mean? What could it mean? And, yeah, there's something fun going on here about this idea of oral history and uh, I'm, I'm going to revisit some ideas from our 10th episode of His Dark Materials, that was The Subtle Knife, chapters 3 and 4, and we we had discussed this a little in the discussion already. Maybe you've all heard it, maybe you all, again, had finished the books by then, so the discussion and uh, Mary and Natal, they have this conversation about the 3,000 years, uh, or the 33,000 years, and then also 
as as you'll all remember, during that subtle knife chapter, we meet uh, Doctor Payne, aka Oliver, Mary's colleague, and he has these fossil skulls that uh, have shadows right that on them, and up until like thirty to forty thousand years, right after before then, there's like not really any shadows on the skulls. Doctor Grumman, aka Joppery was studying societies that were 30,000 years old. We we see something that says that the shadows are connected to, right, like the, the story of Adam and Eve and the original sin, and that something happened um, during this time, 33,000 years ago, and the similarities between the Malefa and the story of Adam and Eve in, in the Lantern Slides, we also have something like... Anyways, but I, I think Pullman is playing around, uh, as we discussed back then, with the idea of behavioral modernity, um, and that talks about like this shift in modern human capacity for language, symbolic thinking, culture, art, and so forth like that. And is very much about, and as, as it's referenced here with the snake asking, so what do you remember? Um, what do you see ahead? What do you know now? And that nothing, nothing, nothing. It's very much about how you move information from one generation to the next, which is why I think it's really interesting in that idea of oral oral history, right? We don't see that the Malefa necessarily have a written language as far as I can tell, but they have this really, really rich culture, as as you pointed out, Chloe. They know their history going all the way back to 33,000 years. They're like, yeah, we know for sure that this Zalif existed. And Mary's astounded by that. It's something that um, isn't always valued in our own society. By modern society, I'm not going to say mod- behavioral modernity. I'm just saying modern society in general. So yeah, there's a there's definitely something interesting too in that like the question remains, right? Like so before 33,000 years, what? What existed and consciousness, right, is why mm-hmm. the Lefa can even remember it, right? Like they gained consciousness 33,000 years ago. And there's something so magical, so dusty, so srafi about <laughs> that. Pullman, I guess picked this number. It's a it's a fun number. It's a good number. Uh, I, I guess it wasn't like a single moment for us in real life, and by us I mean as a, as a people, as a Homo sapiens species. Um, right, it was the like Big on, Bang. Yeah, on and off for like fifty thousand years. I, I bet the Big Bang took a long ass time, probably for like people. So, yeah, yeah, I bet so. Mulefa, seed pod, and trees always lived together and helped one another out after the the consciousness was born there. The Sraf. Mary basically took all this while understanding maybe only 25% of Atal's speech. By the way, there's something really interesting going on in the background of this chapter that she like is like, I have no clue what you guys are saying, but I'm learning. And she's trying to understand. And she does figure out a lot just by body language alone. Uh, and by the end of all of this storytelling, she seems to have a much better command over the speech of the Mulefa. So I think that's so great how he outlines that. The subject's really sprawling, too, right? Like, she's trying to discuss science and dust with them, and it's not working so well to be an easy conversation. Uh, she contextualizes it, though, through the mirror metaphor. Sorry, the mirror make-like. Mm. Reflected light off the sea is polarized, so maybe shadow particles could be polarized, too. Huh. She decides she's going to make a mirror out of the sap lacquer from the smaller trees that are cultivated specifically for the Mulefa's use, and they gather the materials— they have really good luck, thankfully. They uh, There's actually a great omen of luck that they catch three fish while they're hmm. gathering stuff. So that's supposed to be like a, yes, this scientific mission will be awesome. 
They turned the sap into a distilled fruit juice varnish, vinegar kind of varnish, painting the surfaces with it. And this has varying transparencies. Mary finds that curious uh, as she lacquers on the product, and she kind of is reminded of the mineral Iceland Spar, which splits rays into two and makes you see double when you look through it. I was reading on this, and mm-hmm. it's actually a transparent calcite. It's crystallized calcium carbonate. Originally, it's from Iceland, and it's used in demonstrating polarization of light. The double refraction property of the crystal was important to understand the nature of light as a wave, like from Hugens and Newton's work. And it's kind of speculated that the sunstones used in Old Norse folklore and Viking lore, medieval Icelandic texts, was Iceland spar. Uh, they may have even used it for navigation. Hmm. And we're going to see that this uh, amber spyglass is important for maybe navigating life and the world. Um... Yeah, I, I really want a piece of, like, Iceland Spar now, just to, like, hold around and play with. It seems fun. Like, looked it up. Images doubled behind it. And the sap that's used to create this this lens, right, it's made of, I mean, the sap, it's it's a kind, it's resin, right? And resin, as we know, has played a really big role in this series, from those cloud pines, right, the resin stuck on them, to the sticks that Lyra and Will kept, like, running around to help uh, Yorick reforge the knife. And amber, amber is a type of fossilized resin, so I realized only now that I'm like, oh yes, it, wow, it really literally is an amber spyglass. I thought it was just like a fancy regarding its color. It's literally an amber spyglass, but except for the part where it's not fossilized. I mean, there's a lot in the story, right, that focuses on that word amber and baric, if you will. We get a reminder of anbaric lights in the next chapter and electrum slash electric and how that's one of like the branching off points from Will's world and Lyra, this very specific element, or not element, but like material and it's the same thing right it's the same object or uh, mineral sorry material um, that's doubled it occupies these different spaces it's almost a double refraction of amber i'm gonna call it amber because we call it that in our world no i really love that and we'll get to see kind of more of these details uh, of kind of the monotony that she had to go through just to get it perfect, Mm -hmm. you know, the way she wants it. Um, She remembers once quoting Keats to Lyra and reminds herself she needs to put herself into that alethiometer state of mind to be able to kind of get this mirror and its best intentions carved into Mm. it. She works her way into one, grinding at wood with sandstone, and then visits the lacquer grove again with a towel where they get supplies to make more varnish, which she applies with a cottony fiber from a plant, and she paints it over and over and over, at least 40 coats, letting it cure, layering it thickly. The surface is at least 5 millimeters thick by now, and the next day she spends polishing it until her arm and head aches. And she then helps the next day with some of the work that needs to be done around the community. Uh, She does what they call knotting wood, where they create kind of a lattice of sorts with grown weaving and sticks, and she fits into some of these little corners that the Mulefa, the Zalifs, cannot. So she helps them in that manner. I like what you're saying about how the resin is so important here, right? And and to an extent, it almost reminds me of how the blood moss is used for them bodily. But Uh uh, the resin coming back here, it makes this even more akin to the knife forging scene 
right, to the intention craft, to the knife forging, Mm. uh, all of the chapters we talked about last month. Basically, the forging of the mirror is a mirror to the forging of the knife, even along with the make-like, the metaphor, that Will has to forge it together with his mind, has to hold it together, and Mary has to kind of forge these mirrors together with her mind as well. Um, especially important coming after this big conversation that without knowledge, these beings would know nothing upon their birth. Uh, and also with Yorick and Will talking about, you know, like the intentions of the people that made the knife are bad. Does that still mean that this is a bad weapon? Are we doing a bad thing? Am I doing a bad thing? And, you know, science isn't always used for good, as we know. Not always. Yeah, and the sort of knowledge that comes around the knife and and York going through it anyway and I really like what you said last episode of like I mean is this that episode right that behavioral modernity that leads the Panzerbjorn mm-hmm. to becoming a sort of human as well right their own consciousness this disobedience on their part so yeah maybe Lyra will see York one day spoiler Maybe-ing, anyways yeah. Mary plays around with her experiment mirror the next day, but it only shows her a faint reflection. And then she's like, oh, I don't want to have to make another prototype. This one took so much work, which is a very relatable feeling. She brainstorms ways to fix it and realizes, all right, so I'm going to try cutting the wood away and just leave the lacquer, right? How she how she wishes it. And off she goes. She makes a mess. She wonders if she should, I don't know, soak it in water and knows it's not going to soften the lacquer because one of the Malefa, who's like a very expert crafts the leaf, uh, shows her a liquid that would eat through the wood. And it looked and smelled like an acid. And so they swab it onto the wood and her guide in all of this tells her, all right, this is how we make the solvent. So gradually the wood comes free and Mary is left with a sheet of clear brown yellow lacquer and she polishes both sides until they're smooth and fine and then she gazes through it at first she sees nothing in particular but it does show her that double image that chloe was talking about we have a line of she wondered what would happen if she looked through two pieces one on top of the other After reworking and reworking, she makes two sheets, and she looks again. The color's a denser amber, but the image has disappeared. There are no signs of shadows, so she pulls the sheets apart, watching them change the landscape around her. And she realizes something's changed after she pulls the sheets apart and looks again. Everything seems brighter and more vivid. Atal comes to check on her, and Mary explains what she found, while Atal motions that you know, we should be grooming each other, which is a common occurrence between the Zalif. So Mary lets Atal tidy her hair, and she enjoys how the trunk is lifting it and letting it fall and massaging her scalp. Mary, in return, is soothing Atal, examining her seed pods and rubbing her wheels. She can tell that Atal is kind of anxious. Atal is young and unmarried. Uh, she seems anxious about her future. There are no young males in this group, and Atal would have to marry an outsider, someone she doesn't know. She's gonna have to get stolen. Yeah, it's hard, you know. Like Get on Twitter, folk. Atal. Oh, that's we'll find you. you someone good. Oh, yes, Atal on Tinder. Oh my god, at Atal. <sighs> Mary's happy, of course, to calmly clean her friend in return, and she smooths the fragrant oil over Atal's claws while Atal tends to her hair. Eventually they part. Atal is going to help with dinner while Mary goes back to working on science with Amber. This time, as she goes back to work, she sees golden sparkles surrounding Atal's retreating form, and only 
through the part of the lacquer that she touched with her oily hands. She calls for a towel, asking her if she can have just a little more oil to put into the lacquer. She coats one more piece of film, rubbing the plates evenly to spread it, and looks through it again. She can see so many goddamn shadows, just like Azriel's photograph. Everywhere she looks, golden sparkles move in a current of purpose. Conscious beings had more light than anything else. I didn't know it was beautiful, Mary said to Atal. Why, of course it is, her friend replied. It is strange to think that you couldn't see it. Look at the little one. She indicated one of the small children playing in the long grass, leaping clumsily after grasshoppers. Suddenly stopping to examine the leaf, falling over, scrambling up again to rush and tell his mother something, being distracted again by a piece of stick, trying to pick it up, biting ants on his trunk, and hooting with agitation. There was a golden haze around him, as there was around the shelters, the fishing nets, the evening fire. Stronger than theirs, though not by much. But unlike theirs, it was full of little swirling currents of intention that eddied and broke off and drifted about to disappear as new ones were born. And now, Atal says that Mary can see dust. Mary, you gotta come with me. I love this. I, I love this entire... This is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm gonna have a couple small critiques at the end of the chapter we'll talk about, but the first, like, two-thirds of this chapter is just art. It's just, like, beautiful how he just describes the lacquer process and describes mm-hmm. the community of the Zalifs and how they help each other. And even here for Mary, right, like, Seeing dust, this awakening for Mary is born out of a pure friendship with her and Atal. Like, it's born mm-hmm. out of her and her BFF canoodling like GFs, you know? Like, they're just hanging out. She accidentally was blessed with this oil, and boom, she made this discovery. And, and it's just beautiful to watch it born out of love and out of something from the heart. Uh, especially, especially just watching, like, Atal does not give a shit about Mary's experiments. She gives a shit that Mary gives about her experiments, but Atal has no interest in this, and it's made clear in the text that Atal's like, okay, well, you have fun, Mary. I'm gonna go now. I'm gonna go make dinner. Enjoy doing all this. And it's, like, just from the outside looking in at them, like, that's a beautiful balance of friendship, right? Like, you don't need to love the same things. You don't need to both be working on making a lacquered mirror. One of you can go, like, draw in a coloring book and the other can go do her hair and you're still friends afterwards. And I just think that's, like, a a really good representation. It's the most positive relationship in the story, truly. Atal and Mary. You think it's the most positive? I mean, it's a very much a positive one. But it, And as you said, right, great representation of friendship. And yeah. yeah. They're just like, I don't know, come hang out with me later, right? When you're done with your thing. You boring ass science. Yeah, she's like, Mary, (laughs) you hideous loser. (laughs) (laughs) It's the best friend she's ever had, is what I'm saying. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, but um, that you said, right? That the oil comes from this. um, And and it's like both from Mary's hands, I think, a little, and also the Malefa's. And that the lenses also work when they're hand width apart. I just also really love those details, right? Because uh, besides Mary's musings, like on how uh, this object and anything that she has like ever consciously worked on will be seen to have dust, like in a bazillion years, uh, that we know thanks to those skulls, uh, like that it works like hand width apart really goes well politically poetically i think with that idea of like human intention and work right because often we'll see that hands serve as a sort of make like for for work mm-hmm. and intention um 
across a lot of stories and same as the oil from the Malefa and, and her own hands, right? They, she's kind of like anointing this and it it's very deliberate. It, it gives it a sense of it needs to have this humanity in order to get the lens to work. The Malefa began to come out, appearing from their shelters along the river at the hills watching Mary. Atal says they will not hurt her and to come with her. She urges her toward the mound at the edge off the village and says Sadamax will speak, a stranger to Mary, not a Zal if she knew, the oldest of the Mulafa that she had met yet. He moved stiffly as if he had arthritis. Same. She steals a glance through her lacquered glass and sees his shadow cloud is rich and complex, and she already feels such a great respect for him without even knowing him. He speaks in rich tones, greeting her, grateful to grateful for her quick learning of their language and their ways, and now for her learning of Seraf. He invites her to his side, and she gives a very gracious speech in return, thanking them for their help in making the glass and letting her observe them. Sadamax then explains to her the Tualapi will kill them all if she doesn't help them bring dust, which is disappearing, partially because of the Tualapi killing them off. Dust is also disappearing. Because the trees have suddenly started sickening and producing less of it. Uh, because of something that happened 300 years ago. Hmm. I wonder what else that was significant in this entire series happened 300 years ago that is related to dust or maybe figures made out of dust disappearing. Interesting. Guess we'll never know. Interesting. Interesting. Sadamax says that Mary is, like, the person for this job, too, to, uh, you know, to bring back the dust that may or may not have disappeared. Uh, and he says she understands the sraf, the balance that is needed to bring back this to their people. And he's like, you just put together a, a sraf instrument within a few days. Like, you, you're perfect. You're the warrior <laughs> we need to get out there and deal with the dust. The dust buster we need. Sadamax. Sadamax. I actually really like his name. I was like, mm. I wanted to just kind of understand why Holman put this name together like this. So I looked up some of the roots of the name and Seda has a couple different meanings as a root. Seven, for example, uh, an abstract noun formed from the verbal root bood, to wake, to become aware, to know, to notice or understand. Uh, I thought that was very interesting, especially. And then, of course, Max, you know, like Maximilian, Maximus, meaning the greatest. So the greatest understanding, the greatest, most aware of the Zalif is what Sadamax's name really means. He does seem to be that way based on the cloud of dust that Miri saw around him. He should have a really big beard. Oh, like a really I wonder long, if he does. ancient... Oh my god, are they going to give the Mulefa beards? Facial I think they hair? they could. Some of them, that she they said, could. like, some of them have hair, right, around their trunks, so they could have beards. I feel like, Whoa. yeah, I should be saying Shraf more, you know, than swing to the left. I don't know if you gotta, like, dab every time you say Shraf. Shraf, just like, it is kind of a dab. You're right, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> Mary is a little worried about all this, right? She's worried that they're overestimating her abilities, uh, but she she's gonna try her damnedest, for sure. And this is where I do want to bring in some of the critique. There's some language here and just the way it's written that the first two thirds of this chapter are great. They mm -hmm. are like really well done. They are like, like I said, just a great reading, great landscape to get through, great like metaphors and just really great prose. But then you get to this. It's kind of a rush scene and that's fine. But it's like Mary Malone gets all of a sudden ushered 
by all of the Mulefa and put into this middle and she has to like give a speech out of nowhere and there's this line when Sadamax called on her she felt like a schoolgirl being called on in class uh I don't know if the tone's just off or what but it's all such a sudden change in pacing in the chapter and the tone is very elementary and I know Pullman has a great connection to teaching and I'm sure Mary was stuck in school for most of her fucking life right uh but that and all of this sudden change with the Zalifs coming from all over out. Now you have to save us. You made this mirror. You're one of us now. Uh, I don't know. It just felt a little styleless, a little tacky. That's all. I still like it. I still like the chapter, but it just felt a little tacky. Yeah. I mean, the the rest of the chapter is really good. And the next two chapters I really love. And I the idea mm-hmm. of all the Malefa from the different you know, villages coming here, it's kind of interesting. It reminds me a little bit of the Egyptian roping. But, but like, you're, it, this specific area, like you said, it's written a little cheesy and is kind of off. I mean, uh, first of all, as we find out, like, all the Malefa had to do, they just had to, like, neg Mary for being such an uggo to get her to agree to this plan. Mary, you hideous loser. Thank you for making us this thing. Um... I kind of wondered, I had a side thought of, like, do do they think she's hideous, right? They call Mary as, they're like, you're perfect for this job because you're so bird-like. And she's very flattered at this. She's like, oh, I love being described as a bird. And I I think that's interesting. But also, on a separate thought, uh, do they think of her as a bird and ugly because the Tuolapi, which are their enemies, Mm. are a little reminiscent of birds in my head? I don't know. But... Also, obviously, you know, no one's really hideous in this, but also, I don't know, maybe this is true for, I don't know. But also, in regards to what you are saying about it being cheesy, I don't know if it's, like, an accurate way to say that I feel this way about it, but, like, because, you know, the Malefa, they, they are a different species, right? They're a human, in a way, in terms of their soul and how they produce dust, but they are a different species. But some of it is like, oh, Mary, thank you so much for coming from this other place. Oh, you are perfect for this job of saving all of us. Feels a little white savior-y to me, but that's just, I don't know. You know, and maybe that's also, and it's something that we'll kind of bring up in the next chapter at the end of chapter. I, I think there's some parallel meant to be happening here against, you know, Lyra, right Mm. choosing her destiny and here mary is choosing you know this is her choice to help them in the end like will you do this will you do this thing mary malone and mary malone is saying yes yes i will do this thing for you so Mm -hmm. it is very like mary malone chose her destiny and i get that but i see what you're saying completely um i think it's meant to have some parallels there and i think maybe just the tone i think it's just a tone shift maybe that went a little awry yeah well meanwhile on the big other side shift. of all of this, big tone shift. You guys ready for a last second tone shift? Let's head over towards Chitigatse, where Father Gomez is making his way through olive trees. The air is full of cicadas and crickets, and after passing through a village, he gains a new lead on the woman he's following, who went mm-hmm. into the mountains. He heads towards that location, hoping to find more info from an older couple and possibly eat some motherfucking cheese. Yes. So that brings us to chapter 18, The Suburbs of the Dead. And this one opens up with, Oh, that it were possible we might, but hold some two days conference with the dead. From John Webster. 
So this is from The Duchess of Malfi by John Webster, originally published as The Tragedy of the Duchess of Malfi. It's kind of a Jacobian a Jacobian revenge tragedy, which seals his place as Shakespeare's successor in writing to most. Uh, and it takes place in Roman Catholic Italy, exploring love and male authority in a very traditional society that kind of sees women as the wills of men. It follows a duchess who's a young widow in love with a lower class man named Antonio. I'm like, wow, Mrs. Coulter. Uh, but her brothers, oh, her brothers, the Duke and the Cardinal, don't approve of her marrying this man. So Duchess and Antonio secretly marry and they have three children. They're found out, they try to run, but only Antonio and the eldest child escape. The Duchess is betrayed by her servant, who is secretly working for Ferdinand, and her and the youngest children are executed. Eventually, though, the servant feels guilty and has kind of a change of mind and swears to get vengeance for the Duchess after they kill her. She's like, I didn't think they were going to kill her. Uh, and it escalates to kind of just a bunch of violence, and the Cardinal confesses his role in the murders to his mistress, who he then murders. Uh, and the servant then accidentally kills Antonio, the good guy, thinking he's the Cardinal coming back, and then finally is about to get the vengeance on the Cardinal when the Cardinal and Ferdinand end up killing each other in a brawl. It basically ends with the eldest son taking his place as heir to Malfi after all of this seamless violence, and it's kind of a scenic and tragedy uh, Augustan literature influenced, right? Focusing on revenge. And the last act heavily leans on the idea that the brothers have unleashed hell on earth. Hmm. Uh, it, it's also leaning really heavily on the themes of class. The characters who seem to care the most about class in the story are actually the ones doing the most damage to the world. While meanwhile, the Duchess in the front fights for equality for a man's worth. So a couple of really interesting themes that are in that play, it makes me wonder how much of this, uh, he, you know, a lot of these front little poems are great. Some of them are perfect and they tie into the chapter, but some of them, you know, Pullman's just like, ah, good poem. Makes me think of this chapter. I'm going to write it here. So interesting for this play, The Duchess of Malfi. Yeah, I wonder if he's like, finds it, as you said, really, really tied in or if he's just like, oh, I like the song lyric. Let me include it in my, <laughs> away, <laughs> my message. away message slash book. <laughs> really, truly, though, I do think that, like, I think some of these are, I mean, the next one yeah. I really like, too, but I can see where it actually ties into the chapter versus the actual thought of what the next poem in the next chapter is. So there's mm -hmm. a couple of those. I like the beginning, so I think it. Uh, it's a good thinker. It's a good navel yeah. user. Like, I wonder if he expects like in his head i bet he goes i hope someone looks this up i hope someone knows what this is it's probably kind of his way of doing sort of like recommendations too mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like if you like his dark materials here's what i based it all on in my yeah. brain yeah lyra wakes up before dawn to a deafening silence and will is fast asleep because i mean is it a chapter if anyone especially lyra does not start out or asleep at some point Will's head is on the knapsack to protect the knife, and Lyra tucks his cloak around him, and she's, like, pretending she was taking care to avoid his demon uh, as she tucks it around him, and she thinks that his demon would be maybe cat-formed, and she's like, she must be here somewhere. Lyra and Pan sit on a sand dune, quietly chatting about their disdain and mistrust of the Galavespians, and they realize that, well, we can't really trick them, they're too clever, and Pan is a hawk while saying all of this. The sun is beginning to climb in the sky, and Lyra is watching Chevalier Tiales, who is also standing and watching from near Will's head. 
And so with hindsight, it's actually kind of taken me a bit to understand. I'm like, I don't understand why like they have such animosity, right? The children have such animosity towards the Galavespians. But uh, rereading these chapters, I, I kind of wanted to dig into that. But Lyra's impassioned speech and altercation with Tiali's in the next chapter, I think, really goes to show why they're so at odds uh, versus these other guardians that Lyra and Will have had, right? That Lyra has very much trusted, such as Mary and Lee and Serafina and Yorick and, and the Egyptians. All of these people have had Lyra and Will's best interests at heart. And the Galavespians, they've been pretty forthcoming with, at the moment, they do not, right? They made it clear that they have their own goals, uh, that they feel are bigger than the children, and most of all, they have these weapons that they've wielded and have made very clear that they are threatening the children with them this whole time. And obviously, our previous surrogate parents, a lot of them are very dangerous people, formidable in their own ways, especially Yorick, who is a murderer, just like Will, and that therefore makes him great. Um, but they have never threatened our own heroes with that, that violence, there's very much trust that the children have with them, that the danger that they pose is never directed towards Will or Lyra. Uh, whereas the Galavespians have clearly done very little to inspire such trust thus far. And, and like Mrs. Coulter, they actually use that danger and the threat of violence to corral the children. Like this animosity towards them. Uh, the trust isn't there, and I wonder if they're going to be gaining that trust through the next few chapters or if something will change. And... I do find it interesting. I, I haven't read the books, but the Ender's Game books, you know, by that dude. Uh, there, there's this thing, there's a villain, and my husband has explained to me that there's this villain in Ender's Game that, like, is so separated, like, humanity-wise and culturally. Like, they don't see others as, like, a problem, or they don't see the other people in their culture and their place as a problem. They see everybody below them as just, like, these worker ants, and so the way they're set up, and similar to the Galavespians, right? Like, the Galavespians are set up to die. They birth, they war, they die. They don't see other all these underlings, like humans, they just see as ants in their mind, or, like, big ants, right? Super big ants. So I do find it really fascinating that, like, it seems the Galavespians have no kind of footing in understanding humanity or what any of it means necessarily or what it means to them I find that really interesting and i hope they find the humanity the huge humanity as they go the along. huge humanity the turkey loppy yeah they're they're just as you said doing their duty they're just obeying orders nbc that later on mentalities is like i should have punished you i mean like obviously they they probably come from a culture where they expect children to be very well behaved and deferent and uh lyra is definitely not that she has been <laughs> raised with in some ways some love and and has been given license to run free and i mean the galavespians working with the kids right uh, we find out that the big people the people who are our size in their world are the agents of the authority in many ways so i i guess maybe they're just predisposed to be like fuck these kids Kids. <laughs> these um, misbehaved children yeah yeah well the fighting between the galavespians and lyra and will is certainly comical and i'm always here for it <laughs> lyra says that it really doesn't matter what these little shitheads say because they have to follow them they have to get to Azrael. and pan tries to remind her well they have poisonous stingers that they could threaten will with uh and they can make you guys behave. You and me, Pan and Lyra, behave. Lyra thinks, and she's like, oh, yeah. And she remembers Coulter's scream of pain, thinking, mm -hmm. well, 
maybe they'll think Will is cold-hearted, and maybe he could at least get away and watch us die, which, okay, as if, as if. Yeah. She takes out the alethiometer, and she goes into a trance-like state to allow her to read it, and she asks, how can we get rid of the spies? The response is to follow the knife and go onward. So coming back again to that idea, right, of the knife, of this little object itself having its own will, I like that the alethiometer says to- It's literal will. Yeah, yeah, its own, like, literal Uh, uh, will, but also its own intentions, right? Because it's saying to follow the knife and where it goes. Uh, And and I think that, like, kind of directly solidifies that, that warning, because it's saying, like, well, if you're following the knife, the knife can direct you, so- Lyra returns to the main area of the cave, and Tiali's is sending off a lodestone message. She's like, "Who are you texting?" No, um, but she's like, "Oh, so have you spoken to Lord Asriel?" And Tiali's is messaging a representative, and then asks if then Lyra asks a lot of like you know, very probing child questions of like, "So are you and Lady Salmachia married?" And then like, "Do you have any kids? Are you in love? Whatever." And the dragonflies are still asleep though on the cobweb thin cords. And Tali speaks very quietly. Masal Machia, too quiet for Lyra to hear. And she watches them sip on dewdrops to refresh themselves. And she's like, that seems kind of fun, sipping on little dewdrops. And and I just think of, you know, the dragonflies are the only children they will ever have. Kind of like that other series. The dragons are the only <laughs> children I will ever... I'm sorry. Uh, I'm broken. <laughs> My brain's broken. Um, will wakes. And Lyra asks him to come privately speak with her but the gal of Espians give them an ultimatum all right if you want to speak privately you got to leave the knife or you have to talk in front of us so they reluctantly agree leaving the knife to go chat and lyra tells him that all right well the alethiometer told me that we should follow the knife and that you know we're just not gonna tell the gal of Espians our plan we're just gonna we're just gonna surprise them you know not give them an advance warning Take him to the land of the dead, whatever. And speaking of secrets, Will shares that, you know, Yorick thinks that the knife broke because I thought of my mom. I've just been really lucky ever since then to not think of my mom as I'm trying to use the knife. And so they're like, well, follow the knife it is. And they follow it back to the camp group. And they follow it back to the group camp where the gal of Vespians asks, so what is your plan? As if they, you know, didn't just vow like, we're not going to tell them anything. Yeah, Will tells them, well, we're not going to Asriel right now. We will later, not now. And Lyra's like, yeah, uh, you'll have to come along without knowing what our plan is. So just deal with it. Will asks them to guarantee they won't harm them. Something more than a promise. And Tialis is like, I'll yield the lodestone resonator into your care, but you have to tell me your intentions. Lyra mm-hmm. tells them, well, we're going to the world of the dead. Yeah. And Salmaki and Tialis are like, that's a fake made-up place. And Will <laughs> says, I too didn't think it was real, but now it seems a little bit like it's real. Lyra explains the why, which is Roger and Will's dad. Tialis tries to tell Lyra that after death, everything vanishes. Nothing happens after that. Nothing lives on. And Lyra's like, well, I'm going to find out if that's true, Mr. Tialis. <laughs> Then she says, please give me your lodestone resonator. As promised, I will be taking that. They work to find a world with some... Right? They're grounded. (laughs) Grounded, Tialis. They work to find a world to cut into with food and water, and the Galavespians mount upon their dragonflies. Will feels his knife, his card, which he knows he could buy some familiar food with, or call and hear an update on his mom from Mrs. Cooper. Wait a second, I thought we weren't thinking about her, William. (laughs) Hmm. Yes. 
He feels the knife jar. He stops thinking about his mom, which sucks. And then he opens a window and they end up in some northern country like Holland or Denmark. The open stable seems inviting, but once they get inside, Lyra finds four dead horses and millions of flies. They see someone dead in the garden, and they go to scout the kitchen out, where it doesn't quite stink as badly. Yeah, so, I don't know, this just felt kind of like a fun Easter egg-ish thing of, like, the concept of the four, four horsemen of the apocalypse, the conquest, war, famine, and death. Especially death. I mean, I, it felt so pointed that it was four. I, I noticed yeah. that immediately. Felt significant. And, of course, it kind of brings on the world of the dead, right? It makes him go, huh, is this the world of the dead? But no, not yet. Not quite there. They grab some rye bread and cheese from the kitchen, and Will leaves a gold coin, a gold coin on the table. Tialis eyeballs them, and they tell Tialis you should always pay for what you take. Great connection there, right, with the coins in Jordan placed on the scholars' tombs. Lyra had learned not to steal from death with Roger, right, with the shades that came at night to scare her. Additionally, this reminds me of Hades, the hit video game that I've been hyper-focused on for like two to three months that you can like steal from Karen and he fights you. Like you can accidentally be like, oh, thanks for the money. And he'll be like, I don't think so, bitch. Let's fight. Very fun. Very fun. Yeah, that man works hard for for that money. He's got to row you across the river, row all these people. We've also got a great way, I think, like that Lyra's like, oh, you got to pay for shit. Um, that shows Lyra's growth and development, and especially in regards to the influence that Will had on her, because in Shinagatse, she was like, what the fuck are you doing? When Will was, like, paying for something because no one was there, so big lulls at Lyra acting like she wasn't just stealing things a book ago. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay, Lyra. I'm pretty sure she's spelling, like, in this book. She's still, like, stealing. I don't know, maybe. Yeah. Probably. Uh, we can't worry about that girl. Selmachia <laughs> uh, so flies in, and she warns them that men with weaponry are on their way here, while a, vi- a village is burning beyond. They decide to go. Will tries to open a window, but the only problem? The fabric of the world here is super thick. So when he cuts a hole, the world he opens is actually the exact same world that it looks like they're already in. They have to push super hard against an invisible resistance to get through, and once through, they shut the soldiers from the other world out. They land in a kitchen where another figure is with them. The man that Will had seen, not ten minutes before dead in the bushes, is here in the kitchen. He's middle-aged, lean, he looks paralyzed and a little crazed, clutching the table, opening his mouth to speak and closing it, and pointing at the children. They apologize for the break-in, and Lyra introduces them. She asks his name, and he answers, he's dead. He knows he is. They aren't dead, but he is. It's a really long name. (laughs) Meanwhile, the dragonflies are not liking his helter-skelter death shebang, and the Galavespians are trying to control them. Pan's not happy either. He's trying to get away, and Lyra's holding him still to her chest. The man is still trying to understand what happened to him, and he reaches out his hand as Will asks if he's a ghost. Will tries to take his hands, but his fingers close through the air, and all he feels is cold. He says his name was Dirk Jansen, but now he's dead, and he thinks he's going to hell. He doesn't know where to go. I just, maybe because I just recently read, like, Dying in the Light, but I I just want to know, like, the name Dirk had such a death grip on, like, every male, like, sci-fi fantasy writer of a certain age. Like, Dirk, the name Dirk was, like, everywhere. What What is with Dirk? It kind of reminded me of another character, which we won't talk about, that comes up in the Dust books, but it it reminds me of Dick Orchard, just in the R's and the D's. Mm. 
I feel like Dick like isn't as weird to me, but like I mean, you know, it's it's a more common name, I guess. But Dirk, I'm like, I don't know anyone named Dirk. It is but... interesting. I don't think I've met anyone named Dirk. There Maybe... isn't there Dirk in Homestuck or something? Maybe. See, that's what Sounds I mean. Familiar. Well, popular. very popular. It's like a popular sci-fi fantasy name. You're like, oh, you have a fantasy series. Throw in someone named Dirk. Will looks at the barn, the garden, and the entire place. Everything is in- unchanged, right? The man's body is still out there as well, untouched. Dirk Jensen groans helplessly, muttering that he can't stay, and that the farm has changed, that it's wrong. And so, as you're all going to find out very soon, we're on the other side, right? The other side. Um, it's a sort of mirror world in almost every way, even the description of how the knife gets into here along with that thickness. There's also something of it seeming to slide along a smooth surface, uh, like that of a mirror, as it's even said. So I think it's kind of fun because in the last chapter, Mary was initially trying to make a mirror, but ends up making these lenses. Speaking of which, um, at first allowed you to see double. We're seeing double of Dirk right now and a bunch of the dead people. And it's it's a double refraction, right? Where you can see the body and the spirit is split and that the same person seen in the same place slash world in a way, but, but the other side, right, of the light, it, it shows the dead body and, and the other side of that world, the spirit. The difficulty it took to get through that hole that they cut and how it's just like the mirror on the other side, just slightly darker. Salmachia flies down, perching on Lyra's hand and whispering there are people walking from the village like this man all in one direction. Will declares they'll go with them. They'll follow the dead. The figures begin to come towards them as they do so, and when Dirk sees the ghosts, he breaks into a run to greet them and join them. Will wonders if these people had demons in this world, and he and Lyra discuss that had they not been told, they weren't sure they would know this man was a ghost. They don't look normal. Will remembers men who used to walk the shops, holding a same plastic bag. Will himself says he used to pretend to be a ghost. Will says, maybe my world's full of ghosts and I never knew. (laughs) Creepy, and I love that so much. And it kind of reminds me of the victims of the specters a little bit, right? Because they're described as still being there, kind of, just not there. Uh, And it even reminds me of that first meet with Angelica and Paulo. Where are the grown-ups? The girl's eyes narrowed. Didn't the specters come to your city? So for Will saying, maybe my world's full of ghosts, Angelica here, they're from a world that's already dealt with that, right? This is normal. The ghosts taking over and crowding the city. And here, uh, even when they all leave, they echo that appearance of the specters, the gray mist that's clinging to the air in the wake of these ghostly people. It's really interesting. It is. It is. Um... And like you said, kind of kind of really haunting and sad, the idea that maybe our world's full of ghosts and I never knew. Big sad. Because I guess you can easily tell in Lyra's world. Anyway. Um, well, Lyra says, as we've been saying, this must be the world of the dead! Uh, not quite, but almost. The, the soldiers must have killed these people. And she thought it'd be a lot more different, this land of the dead. And suddenly the world is fading around them as they walk on, not unlike the time that Will had watched an eclipse of the sun as he stepped through to Chittagatse from his world. Uh, Like when the Dead Moon Circus comes, 
The daylight fades into an eerie twilight as if strength is draining out of a dying sun. Ah, the dying of the light. Um, things lose definition and blur, colors leaving the world, everything but the electric blue and red and yellow of the dragonflies and their riders. Will and Lyra take a step towards the ghosts, telling them that they won't hurt them, asking where they're going. They look to the oldest man among them, who seems to be their guide. There's a lot paralleling Mary's chapter here. Right, we have the the anti-parallel in that here the color is fleeting. It's flying from the world where Mary suddenly got more color after using the amber spyglass, right? Everything became more vivid. Uh, and not only that, but the head ghost. This is the older, respectable head ghost man compared to the Zalif, right? To Sadamax, who's the wise Zalif of the Mulefa. Yeah, and, and also a little bit of uh, that anti-parallel, as you're saying, right? Because... Later on, we find out that the old man's all like, oh, when we get to the land of the dead, the sinners are going to be separated from the bl- those who kept the faith or whatever, basically. And it's like, shut up, old man. Um, anyways, the man says he feels like he knows uh, where, where to go, but he can't remember learning it. He's like, yeah, they'll know when they get there. A child asks his mother why it's getting dark out, and she hushes them, telling them that they're dead, and they're gonna go see Grandpa. And the child weeps bitterly, inconsolable. Others in the group look on, either sympathetic or maybe even annoyed. All they can do is continue to walk into the fading landscape. Chevalier skims ahead to get a peek, and Salmachia explains to them that she thinks that the landscape is fading because the people are forgetting. The farther they go, the darker it gets. They all argue about why the people of the dead are leaving. And Lyra says she'd want to stay somewhere familiar if she were a ghost. But Will says, well, I don't know. They were probably unhappy and afraid here. I mean, they did die here, so. You know, it is very, uh, as we go down into the underworld, it is very Elysium, right? The people are there, but as in their deaths and they're forgetting. They're choosing to forget. Mm. Also, not unlike Korra, right? When they're in the... The fogginess. Oh, yes. When Tenzin goes in the fog and everyone's forgetting. Uh, The ghosts walk steadily, peeking at Will and Lyra from time to time until the oldest man finally says, Why are you following us? You're not dead. You're not ghosts. They explain they were escaping the soldiers, too, and that they are trying to follow the group. And they ask, you know, hey, how did you know to go here? Like, what, what told you to go here? And the ghost says, well... I don't know, we just knew. We we think we'll be told more. That when we arrive where we're going, they'll tell us. And then he goes, and then sinners and righteous will be separated. And it's no good praying now. You should have done all that before. Which, yes, again, like you said, Aliana, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, slow your roll. Slow your wheels there, ghost man. He uh, quite obviously expects to be put in one group over the other and thinks that very few people will be in that group with him. And the other ghosts are listening to him kind of uneasily, but on they walk. Eventually, Chevalier comes back, and Salmachia meets him in air, speeding back to the kids. There's a town ahead that looks like a refugee camp, centuries old. The cry of birds and people ring loudly, and people keep arriving from all different directions, just like the ghosts they're with now. Eventually, Lyra, exasperated, exclaims to Will, How are we going to help all of these people? Will is like, I have no clue. So they are in the same shoes and boat as Mary Malone right now, right? As all of the Mulefa came from all the villages from all over. Uh, And on the horizon, they see thousands of men, women, children drifting over the plains. And the ground becomes softer and slopes down into mud. And the air becomes acidic, 
full of smoke, garbage, sewage, decay, and the mist rises ahead. It rose like a cliff to merge with the gloomy sky, and from somewhere inside it came those bird cries Tialis referred to. Between the waste heaps and the mist, there lay the first town of the dead. He's not taking it easy on that whole corruption, greed, capitalism thematic thing, huh? Phil has got it out there. He put it out there. It's almost like he wants it as a theme in this story. Mm-hmm. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. I do think it- this is a powerful ending compared to that last chapter, right? Mary's chapter is haunted by bird cries, too. The Tuolapi. Mm-hmm. And while she seems to be in a paradise after looking through her amber-tinted glasses, so <laughs> to speak, she sees the truth as being hidden. And as Le- Lyra and Will are cutting into this desolate world, they too are finding the truth with the bird calls ringing around them has been hidden. It, it is, and I, I think we'll expand on this theme a little bit more. But I, I also just love this idea of like the first town of the dead, right? Um, as we are currently in the suburbs of the dead, as the chapter says. And we're going to meet some people there in those suburbs. For example, chapter 19, Lyra and her death. We have opened it up with this line of, I was angry with my friend. I told my wrath. My wrath did end. From William Blake. Mr. Blake in the house. We know we like (laughs) Mr. William Blake here. This is is from a poem, A Poison Tree by William Blake from Songs of Experience. Uh, Originally, it was titled Christian Forbearance, if that says anything to you. Yeah, it's a first-person poem, real short, metaphoric, four stanzas, and it relates how in being angry with a foe versus being angry with a friend, when you're angry with your foe, the anger grows because you don't tell your foe that you're angry with them, right? They're a foe. Why would you go chit-chat with your enemy? But if you talk to your friend and you tell them you're angry, example given, Eliana, if I was annoyed with you, I would simply say, stop being the way you are. Uh, But if I was like... The patriarchy sucks. Fuck the patriarchy. The patriarchy is not going to do anything in response. They are not going to hear me. Uh, So the next two lines in first stanza actually relate that. They say, I was angry with my foe. I told it not. My wrath did grow. So he later Mm -hmm. relates in this poem the anger growing into an apple, which seems to kind of symbolize vengeance and the enemy eating the apple instead of William Blake waiting for karma or fate or whatever power to decide. He's kind of going ahead and doing it for him, right? Little little murder, little vengeance. Now his enemy is dying in vengeance. And I think uh, I think that line really probably is, like we said earlier, one of those things that just made him go, oh, yeah, reminds me of Lyra and her death. You know, <laughs> and the wrath and the wrath, which I, I see how he's splitting that dichotomy. But I like it otherwise. Really great poem. We love William Blake in this house. I recommend it. I recommend all the poems on experience. They're good. Well, I mean, all that imagery very much fits into, right, like, this this book, The Eating of Apples, and apples meaning something, and in regards to the story of Adam and Eve. But also, I, I read this line and what you're saying about it regarding friends and foes, as maybe it was about uh, the little, not little, but, like, the big argument that Lyra and Tiali's are going to have towards the end of this chapter. Mm. And that does bring up death. Death is like, oh, hello. But before we get there, let's talk about this town. The town is burned and in ruins. uh, Though some of the parts of it have been repaired over the years. And the ghosts are hurrying towards it from every direction. They seem to know where they are going, even if the center of town is becoming more and more confusing to Will and Lyra. 
The debtor suddenly stopped, and a thin man, who is not a ghost, tells them that they need to wait because they cannot get, go through as they are not dead, and they must stay in the holding area. I like all of the uh, kind of the office work they've brought that's been brought into this, right? It's become very systemic. Like, all right, where are your papers? Where's your ID? Your voter registration? You know, all the good yeah. stuff going on here. And it's very semi-reminiscent of, like, going to a DMV, right? Yes, uh, it is. It, so it's mundane. so monotonous. So monotonous. Yeah. And, like, all right, get in line at the DMV. Uh, but believe it or not, this is, like, this scene, I think, is a, a really great one for that and that kind of trope because I think it's used very often in many medias whether sci-fi fantasy etc that follow kind of the uh the underworld look at things and going to the underworld because it's probably just a corporate place just like every other in america no i'm just kidding uh there's also an episode of the magicians that i kind of was like thinking about while reading this and i'm like huh i wonder if the writers of the magicians when they wrote this episode for the show not the book the book is very different and does not have this same scene uh, but they go basically to an underworld and someone is missing part of their soul and they're trying to find it and get it back. And as I said that to myself, I was like, oh, wait, that's just, that's what they're doing. It's the same thing. So I wonder, I wonder if the magicians read that as well. I would not be surprised. I've only watched the show and not read the books yet. But I mean, that that's a great comparison between these two stories and how they reacted. Because I mean, and I, I think that I would not be surprised if the magicians author what is it lev grossman right has read mm -hmm. pullman and was influenced and also both of these stories are influenced and very much responses to the chronicles of narnia so in yeah. different ways so that's kind of fun that's a fun comparison really good i highly recommend the magicians if you guys haven't watched it and the first book is actually really good i haven't gone past that yet uh but it does obviously very much derail and change the show is very different very yeah. different yeah Adaptation. there's more musicals and yeah and way more characters yeah Interesting, um, though. One day I'll read those books. I, I do intend to. I have a long list of things I intend to read. <laughs> well, Lyra and Will can stay in this place because it is a suburb of the world of the dead, and people just wait here until it is time to die. Uh, when people die, they take a boat, but the rest is secret secret, and the man directs them back to the holding area, and he sends them with papers, which later turn out to like kind of just look like scribbled scraps of paper. They're like, what the fuck is this? Is this a real paper? Um, people who end up here usually do so by accident, and the Galavespians' dragonflies are sluggish, they need rest... Pan, as a leopard, is very jealous, though, about the Galavespians getting to rest on Lyra's shoulders. He's like, that's my place. Um, and after a while of walking, they reach a wooden shack where their papers... Surprisingly, it works to kind of let them through, but then not really, because they're turned away again into the town to find a place to stay. Uh, turns out there are there is some embaric lighting here, electricity, uh, but otherwise most of the places do look shabby. They see a bunch of figures that are just chatting together, but they aren't inside, and they realize those also aren't ghosts. They're kind of weird. And as they get closer, they realize, oh, they are five men with faces in shadow and dressed shabbily and silent. And everyone is being super weird and petty about these, like, about these figures during these chapters. And just about appearances, right? From Mary to these. Anyways, they don't respond to questions, and... Also, these figures give Pan the very creepy crawlies and was like, well, fuck you too, right? And finds that all, like, 
all of the figures do this. They're very weird and silent. And then they are like, I guess they're not specters, probably. I don't think we're old enough yet. Well, and of course, the way it's described, right, is like, these are practically refugee camps for people that aren't accepted, right, past the gates. Mm -hmm. You know, they're walking through these camps of just people that don't have the right papers or a soul or whatever their their death you know uh they're missing all the right stuff to get through and they can't go back i mean they could but like no one's helping them be like you're almost at the land of the dead what if we sent you back to the other side right like why why is there no one there to guide them back to the world of the living but that is that is interesting. There's always a guide for the land of the dead, but not one back to the land of the living. It's like, too bad. You gotta stay here. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck. Finally, they find a real person in a doorway that they can get kind of a confirmation of location from, and they explain their travelers looking for food and shelter. The man asks the weird figures by the door if they saw any deaths with these people as they come in, and in response to all this, they see a woman, two children, a man in the home, nervous. Will tries to reassure them they have brought zero death, and this has a very opposite reaction, right? They're like, uh, no, the point is you need your death to get into this bar. <laughs> Lyra tries a different approach, and she's like, are the weird guys by the door dead? And then she starts kind of comparing the situation to demons in her own world. The man asks if the spies are demons, but she corrects them. No, they're friends. Then she shows off Pan as a mouse. The man says... It's strange, I guess these are strange times, but whatever, and lets them in, into a small single room decorated with magazine cutouts, full of sooty fingerprints and a single iron stove, just gaudy and overcrowded. Besides the people they saw at the front, there's also a baby, an older man, and an old woman here wrapped in blankets. I also just really love this one scene, right? It's like, as Lyra looked at her, she had a shock. The blanket stirred and a very thin man, a thin arm emerged in a black sleeve. And then another face, a man's, so ancient it was almost a skeleton. And I, I don't know, just like the thought of them being like, oh my god, there's a man in bed with the old woman. Like, I don't know why. It's so surprising to everyone. Just, it's, it's very funny to me. It's also one of the figures that we saw outside the door, as it turns out. Lyra finally finds the words after being shocked and just diffuses the whole situation and explains, like, I'm very thankful for your kindness, um, apologizes <laughs> again of, like, having no death, and explains that she is looking for the land of the dead in case anyone has any directions. But everyone is still staring, even though it somehow feels a little less awkward, though, I guess. It doesn't really sound like it's less awkward. It still seems pretty awkward. The man, whom we later learn is named Peter, and the woman of this household is named Martha. Uh, Peter busts out some alcohol. It smells like uh, described as like the Egyptian's Jennifer. And the Galavespians also partake in some. I love that. That's based off the Juniper Berry, as we kind of talked about a while back. And it is probably gin, right? This is probably their world gin. Mm. I love gin. Me too. I like a, I like a gin, so I guess we're going to die. Yeah. Or go try to die. You know? mm. <laughs> Surprisingly, these people are all more curious about Will and Lyra and their lack of death. They got to this place by accident and are waiting for their death to beckon them. We found we all brought our deaths with us. This is where we found out. We had them all the time and we never knew. See, everyone has a death. It goes everywhere with them, all their life long, right close by. Our deaths, they're outside, taking the air. They'll come in by and by. 
Granny's death, he's here with her. He's close to her. Very close. Doesn't it scare you, having your death close by all the time? Said Lyra. Why ever would it? If he's there, you can keep an eye on him. I'd be a lot more nervous not knowing where he was. And everyone has their own death? Said Will, marveling. Why, yes. The moment you're born, your death comes into the world with you, and it's your death that takes you out. Ah, said Lyra, that's what we need to know, because we're trying to find the land of the dead, and we don't know how to get there. Where do we go, then, when we die? Your death taps you on the shoulder or takes your hand and says, Come along, oh me. It's time. It might happen when you're sick with a fever, or when you choke on a piece of dry bread, or when you fall off a high building. In the middle of your pain and travail, your death comes to you kindly and says, Easy now, easy child, you come along of me. And you go with them in a boat across the lake into the mist. Whatever happens there, no one knows. No one's ever come back. Yeah. Ooh, spooky. <laughs> I love that. I-, I do love this passage. Same. To level with you all, I think about death a lot, and sometimes it's overwhelming. Uh, but this chapter in its totality is a beautiful, bittersweet, and amazing way to interpret an understanding of death from several different people and what they see it as, right? Uh, and in that same token, an understanding of life. The last two chapters are kind of dark and grim, and in direct comparison to the very last chapter of the book, no spoilers, the color palette visually changes. Mm. So the metaphors alone about death and darkness in this chapter are comforting while not being condescending. I knew I was critical of Phil, Philly there, in his first chapter, but he won me back in full with this chapter. Um, the, the biggest question philosophers, scientists, therapists, theologians, you name it, ask in understanding death and what they've sought to kind of understand has always been, why do we die? What happens after we die? How can we prolong life? And how can we experience a good death? And it brings up kind of this also this, this moral quandary of a good death, of what's a good death versus a bad death, right? Is it scientifically defined? Is it subjectively defined? Is it about how much pain the person suffers? Uh, which again, in these same tokens, I don't think Pullman is falling short in how he's also reminding the viewer that like at the end of all things, when you're here at the end, right, when you are almost dead, when you are literally at death's door about to go to this underworld, uh, Death and life are similar, but dissimilar Mm. in that life is what you can control. You will experience death. You will experience life. I will experience death. I will experience life. But the only one of those two things you can control is actually life. I I, I just love, uh, like you said, like, I love this chapter. I love all the descriptions of death and the way it's described. We have a few more passages because I was like, we're putting all of it in. And, And I agree. It's very bittersweet. And... This interpretation's really, really fun. And there's, I think, something really poignant about the way that death is described in these chapters and how these people speak with such comfort about their deaths. But upon rereading it, because we we kind of read some of these chapters a little uh, last month, too, for our October episode, um, I've kind of gotten fixated on the title of the previous chapter of it being called the suburbs of the dead and the, the way that the life of this family is described and... I don't know if they're like content or not or happy, but Pullman describes their lives with such squalor and that their home is like so tacky and that rather than having art on their walls or 
like they don't have photographs of their own family. The walls are decorated with like magazine cutouts of film stars and then like plastic flowers and shells are like what what make up this home. And I think that there's more than one way to read this scene. I don't or maybe not, I don't know, but the some of these interpretations don't really like work with one another. Um they're all a little different. Here's two of them that I, I, I was thinking about. Like one of them, like the concept of it as suburbs and the worship of celebrity over one's life and lived experiences coming back to like what you were saying earlier in, in the previous chapter or two, like that critique of capitalism and maybe like this concept of the suburbs as places of shallow comfort. I don't know if like that's what Will's, not Will, uh, that's what Phil's saying, uh, but you know, that they're so comfortable and close to their deaths because they are near the world of it and this idea that they are not truly living that they're just here idling their time away waiting for death and then there's another interpretation of it that i think is uh similar to what you were saying about this place sounding like a refugee camp right they're they're in a single room home that's so crowded with the dingy clothing and the single stove and there's a constant like reference to the homes here as looking like shanties and the man at the gate saying that people end up here by accident. So there's another reading that then suggests, like, are these people, it sounds like, are they living in poverty? They're close to their deaths because of how difficult their life has been. I mean, I don't know if it's difficult or not. Um, and the difficulty of survival. But they also, in some ways, seem very comfortable. They're welcoming people into their homes. They're happy or maybe happy enough, which is why I'm like, is this also a critique of suburbs? I don't know. Um, and then there's that other thing going on where, again, you've said, like, the way that death is described. It is very comforting. And it is true, right? Death is inev inevitable. It follows us. And, I mean, as far as I know, one day I'm going to die. Everyone's going to die. So the the argument of why not welcome it as a friend rather than run from it all your life. Um, and I'm sure that there are other ways to read the scene. I also am like, I feel like Phil Pullman would just be like, yo, all of these are valid, even though like none of them, like not, not all of them really work with one another. Um, as long as a case can be made for them within the text, but whatever. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's many ways to live life, you know, many ways yeah. to die. So that makes That's sense. True. That the scene in itself, like could literally be that, like just read in so many ways. And I think that's the point, like, you know, not to Aeswaf yeah. quote it, but we look up <laughs> at the stars and we see such different things, right? Um, yeah. And I think that's something he does really well here, absolutely, of like, about to talk in a minute about his death. He, This guy has learned his death's name, right? Like mm. he is BFFs with his death where other people, as he'll say, you know, they spend their life hiding and seeing it peek around corners and I think that's part of it is you get this big declaration soon. And Mary in the last chapter, in the first chapter too, has her own big declaration of like living her life to its fullest. And she's actually out with the Mulefa right now doing that too, mm. right? Yeah. And and I that's the thing. These people aren't living, I think, life to the fullest, which... Well, and that's what Lyra has to and Will have to go save, right? Yeah. They have to go save all these people. They do, but they're not ghosts, so I don't know. So a child that is also comfortable with death, like, brings in the deaths to show Will and Lyra. And they explain, no one knows when it's time, but death is close by. And they, as you've pointed out, the people find it comforting. Tiali silently does not find this comforting, though. <laughs> the deaths, though, become easier to ignore over there. Um... However, Will then, as he thinks about death, becomes really racked with guilt as he thinks of all the people that he killed. He's like, were all of their deaths close by? Poor Will. Martha serves stew, and our travelers do not eat. 
any of it, but the family does. And I am like, this feels smart and telling for Lyra and Will that they do not risk eating the food so close to the land of the dead, considering, well, you know, I'm going to gesture, gesture at the myth of Persephone. And I feel that speaks for itself. Might have to stay there forever, Will and Lyra. Yep, yep. Lyra is excited to tell them all about their world, and she does her favorite thing in the world, which is where she lies about everything. And we have this little quote. As she said that, as she took charge, part of her felt a little stream of pleasure rising upward in her breast like the bubbles in champagne. And she knew Will was watching, and she was happy he could see her doing what she was best at, doing it for him and for all of them. Bullshitting. Bullshitting is what she's best at. Oh my god. I love this. I love this line. Um, it's got it's got a similar energy to like she was a murder. He was a murderer, and so she trusted him. You know, but she's like, I'm so happy. This is me flirting just by lying in front of all these people. I'm so proud that Will can see this. I'm worried about that girl and her future relationship endeavors. Okay. Oh my god. Yeah. yeah. Lyra, who taught you to love? No one. No one taught me to love. That's the problem. Aww. Master love <laughs> Anyway. Uh, moving on from this fantastic moment. Uh, yeah, so Lyra's story, it's, it is quite the tale, right? And it, Will rescues her and brings her to, like, wolves who raise them. There's a lot of things in this. Um, and the, these people, they believe the whole thing, right? And the story is just, like, batshit insane. And I didn't include the whole thing. Just just go read it. It's It's ridiculous, and we needed the episode to be a manageable length, but... It's insane. She even, like, makes Will and the spies corroborate it. And also, every now and then, Salmachia chimes in and adds to it. Adds some, like, little details to the story. I love that Salmachia and Lyra are actually forming a bond more than Chevalier. You can see it in this chapter especially because Salmachia has been the one on the lookout flying back and going straight to Lyra and being like, hey, this is happening. Hey, this is happening. Yeah. So it's it's really just Tialis, you know? Like, Salmachia has slowly softened. But we gotta get Tialis still. We gotta get him still. Yeah. He's probably like, what the fuck is going on here? <laughs> and, and it just like uh, ends with Lyra saying like, well, I guess if we knew Arda's, it would be easier to get here. Thank you all so much for listening, but please help us figure out how to get to the land of the dead. And so the grandmother's death pipes up out of nowhere and explains that entering the land of the dead leads them to find their own deaths. You must call up your own deaths. I've heard of people like you who keep their deaths at bay. You don't like them, and out of courtesy, they stay out of sight. But they're not far off. Whenever you turn your head, your deaths dodge behind you. Wherever you look, they hide. They can hide in a teacup, or in a dewdrop, or in a breath of wind. Not like me and old Magda here, he said, and he pinched her withered cheek, and she pushed his hand away. We live together in kindness and friendship. That's the answer. That's it. That's what you gotta do. Say welcome. Make friends. Be kind. Invite your deaths to come close to you and see what you can get them to agree to. You know, it seems like the deaths are also like the shadow of demons. You know, when we're talking about that refracting refracting mm. light and the two lenses, they kind of seem like a shadow of demons. They do. And and especially because Pan's like, I don't like this. I just love that they can be anywhere, right? And I, I like that idea. Like, oh, death can be anywhere for you. In a dewdrop, breath of wind. It also reminds me a little of, speaking of demons, that guy at Jordan College who had a woman for his demon, 
as we find out from the little coins uh, that you reminded us of. And it made me wonder for a while, I was like, oh, was this guy actually, like, from this world and brought his own death? But then I guess, like, all the deaths seem to be, like, I don't know, male presenting, and also this, like, wine was removed in some versions of the books. So maybe Fulman was like, I don't like that idea anymore. Anyway, um, as pointed out throughout this chapter and then Lyra's conversation with her death, each person's death, uh, not only tells them when it's time to go, um, each one is a psychopomp, a very personal one. You have your own personal death. Um, and it's it's interesting to see that Pullman also took this route versus, like, you know, having one single, like, god, like, Hermes or something guiding everyone, like, to their deaths, right? Um, and we talk a lot more about psychopomps in our October Patreon His Dark Materials episode. Naturally, they all are like, so how do we do this? How do we call for death to be our best friends and hang out with them and this death says well you just wish for it and i'm sitting here i'm wishing very hard it's still <laughs> not happening tialis is alarmed and lyra steps in they go outside to chat tialis is like this is enough this is foolish this is a bad plan he insults lyra and says you don't realize how foolish this all is you're ignorant to the truth we need to stop all this nonsense and go to asriel lyra however takes great offense to that Lyra felt a great sob of rage building up in her chest and stamped her foot, unable to keep still. You just don't know what I got in my head or my heart, do you? I don't know if you people ever have children. Maybe you lay eggs or something. I wouldn't be surprised. Because you're not kind. You're not generous. You're not considerate. You're cruel, even. That would be better if you were cruel. Because it'd mean you took us serious. You didn't just go along with us when it suited you. Oh, I can't trust you at all now. You said you'd help me and we'd do it together. Now you want to stop us. You're the dishonest one, Tiales. I wouldn't let a child of my own speak to me in the insolent, high-handed way you're speaking, Lyra. Why I haven't punished you before. Punish me since you can. Take your bloody spurs and dig them in hard. Go on, here's my hand, do it. You got no idea what's in my heart, you proud, selfish creature. You got no notion how I feel sad and wicked and sorry about my friend Roger. You kill people just like that. That They don't matter to you, but it's a torment and a sorrow to me that I never said goodbye to him and I want to say sorry and make it as good as I can. You'd never understand that for all your pride, for all your grown-up cleverness. And if, I, and if I have to die to do what's proper, then I will. And be happy while I do. I've seen worse than that. So if you want to kill me, you hard man, you strong man, you poison bearer, you chevalier, you do it. Go on, kill me. Then me and Roger can play in the land of the dead forever and laugh at you, you pitiful thing. Artwork. It's artwork. It's literally <laughs> the Mona Lisa of passages. It's so good. It's so good. A, a plus, first of all, Eliana, you'll be receiving your reward. Thank you. I fucked up, but thank Eliana you. Eliana won. Uh, but Lyra really won. Yeah, you, That's true, too. This is what brings her death forward, though, right? Like, this is Lyra accepting her death in general, uh, accepting that death has happened, will happen, will happen to her, has happened to her friend, and living her life free of that liberation of from death, right? Like, everything they're talking about, looking around corners every few seconds, thinking, you know, like, oh, is my death there? She's not living like that. Lyra is 
well, right now she's rushing to her death. She wants to meet it, uh, but she's actually living like her ultimate purest life and doing her heart's desire to go fix what she hurt and broke with her best friend to try to save someone, right? And not just that, but along the way, she's actually living out purely like saving others, right? All these people she wants to save. It's not just Roger. Yeah, I absolutely. She's just... She has been living life to the fullest. I mean, like, some of what she's been doing, very risky. Remarkable that she has not been afraid of dying. I mean, like, going to the north, almost getting, like, severed, and just just running away. Running on rooftops, first of all. That was her childhood. Um, and, I don't know, I love this this line of, like, it, it's ultimate petty, you know? That she's like, then me and Roger can play the land of the dead forever and laugh at you. Take that. All right? I get what I want. Um, either time. And... You know, at first I couldn't tell, like, if this was, like, just a very smart ruse on everyone's part to rile Lyra up and get her to summon her death, but it seems very not. It seems everyone is very mad um, at each other here, and I just love, in terms of, like, there's all this petty that Lyra has in here, and... I mean, it's kind of actually very rude. She, like, insults them. She's like, I don't know if you lay eggs. I'm, like, very xenophobic. <laughs> she's just like, fuck you, you lay eggs. None of you have kids. I don't know. And she's and also, you know, uh, I, speaking of the Galavespians from earlier, to add on to those thoughts, I'm like, damn, where does Tiali's get off, like, thinking as the authority to, like, publish, punish Lyra? It's like, those aren't your kids, dude. But in general, it's just a very fun, cleverly done scene. Lyra, she gives me big, like, push the goddamn button energy of the little girl from Rush Hour, which I bring up all the time. <laughs> push the button, push the goddamn button. And that, I mean, that leads to her inviting her death, right? And besides the living life to the fullest, I think what's so important about the scene is it really just shows that deep guilt and despair that's in Lyra's heart. I think, um, you know, she's willing to die, not just because she believes it's right, but out of this really heavy grief that's been weighing on her about what she's done to her best friend, there's a lot of complex emotions going on here. Both Will and Lyra are very affected suddenly thinking about death. Will's like, uh, I just killed all those people. And Lyra's like, I mean, my best friend died because of me. Yeah, it's a lot of guilt to put on these youngsters and that they have the like audacity and the hearts to go, we want to fix it. Where you have mm -hmm. all these adults that have fucked up the world. And they're like, we just want to fuck it up more. Uh, it's a, yeah. a big contrast. These are, we need more Will and Lyra's. We need more 12, 13, 14 year old kids out there just risking it all going to the underworld. <laughs> we have, uh, I mean, we've seen, Gen Z has shown a lot of moxie. That's true. That's true. Moxie. A lot of the gusto. Cat. Oh. Oh. So, Tialis is not happy with any of this. He's ready to kill her. He's angry. And suddenly, there's a chill from a voice. And congrats. We did it. It's Lyra's death, team. Welcome. Pan heads to Lyra's heart, and she holds him there. And she talks to her death and explains, you know, I love living, but I also want to go to the land of the dead. We get confirmation that demons don't go to the land of the dead, but Lyra would like to go and also return. So, Death says no one has done this for ages. And you'll go there again someday, safely. Like, why are you rushing? We'll go together as good friends. And Lyra's like, no, I have Pan. I don't need new friends. I don't know you. But Death is polite about it. He's not really a jerk in return. Lyra says she must go, though. And she allegedly, she lies. But it does feel real, right? Like, that she's like, I have to. I can't deal with all this. This is a lot. 
Besides seeing Roger, she says that there's a task from an angel that she has, and it must be her, and now. Tialis puts the lodestone resonator away, and he watches Lyra plead with her death. Death scratches his head and says, well, you're making a great case. But really, she's just unrelenting. Uh, Death says he'll guide her to the land of the dead, but getting out is a her problem. She has to figure that out. Lyra asks, what about my friends? Not that they wanted to go. And Tialis is like, fine, whatever, I guess I'll go. Lyra understands that they're conciliating a little now, and she thinks, and she was happy to do that, having gotten her way, which is a total mood. I do that all the time. So she apologizes, and she thanks him for helping get her death here as well. Mm. Yeah, that, that moment of her accepting her death and accepting that this is how she is going to go to the underworld, it pairs so well against Mary Malone standing up and accepting her role in helping the Mulefa. Right, I think that's really well done and shows that both of them want to help change. I mean, there's a risk here. There's a price. What is it? It's a heavy burden being a hero. And so we close the chapter. So Lyra persuaded her own death to guide her and the others into the land where Roger had gone and Will's father and Tony Macarios and so many others. And her death told her to go down to the jetty when the first light came to the sky and prepared to leave. But Pentalemon was trembling and shivering and nothing Lyra could do could soothe him into stillness or quite the soft little moan he couldn't help uttering. So her sleep was broken and shallow on the floor of the shack with all the other sleepers and her death sat watchfully beside her. Ending with Lyra sleeping. Um, I love this Tony Macario's callback and the way that they describe the, the the land of the dead as this tangible place by tying it to the people who have gone there before them. Gotta remember Tony Macario's. And not just the people that had gone there, but also, like, those are some of the reasons, right? Yes. Like, Tony Macario's death is what drove Lyra to keep going to find Roger. I mean... Meeting yeah. him and realizing what has happened to him from being severed, like, it's kind of part of what's compelled Lyra, not just with Roger across this journey. Uh, and Will's father, obviously, is the big kicker for why Will's like, yeah, I'll follow this chick to hell. Yeah, it's it's emotional. I'm very glad someone fucking remembered him. Well, yeah, Phil yeah. wrote him, but you know. Thank God someone remembered Tony. I am a little hurt. That no one's like, and that's where Lee went. Like throughout this chapter, no one's talking about how yet Lee also died. So. Yeah, doesn't seem to have quite hit yet. I guess because they didn't that, see it yeah. in front of them. Maybe I don't know. Yeah, because they just kind of half know that he's dead. They yeah. weren't there, so I guess these are the most affecting ones. I mean, these ones were very traumatic. It's true. Absolutely. Justice for Tony Macarios. With that, we're going to go to our discussion. So if you have not finished The Amber Spyglass, if you have not read The Books of Dust or The Outer Novellas, log off now. We'll see you next year in 2022. <laughs> we'll see you in 2022. Uh, oh, but for fuck. those who are ready to tune into a tiny quick discussion, stay tuned. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. All right. Do you think they're gone? Do you think the unspoiled think have left? They're gone. Okay, good, good. And if you're not, that's on you. <laughs> There's some fun demon stuff going on in these chapters, right? Like Lyra has an intuition about Will's demon. He thinks that she's like, oh, if he had a demon, I know it's a cat. Ah, mm. it is, bitch. How'd you know? I loved that. 
It's so... She knows him so well. They know each other so well. Pullman, what a bastard. He's just winking at us. And there was another one, like, right before it, in the chapter where they're describing Mary as bird-like, and not about her being hideous, because her demon's also a bird. Yeah, she is, has a bird demon. I forgot about that. Well, and you know, when you think about that, like, with the the beginning of the books, how we get the description of, like, you know, uh, if you have a demon in the sea, like the sailors on the sea, they have to run on the deck next to their demon where their demon has to swim to keep up forever. And if you're a person with a bird demon, you know, your bird demon wants to fly and can't. And there is something about that with Mary, right? Like that limited feeling of whether it's just like a woman in STEM or, you know, like that that limited yeah. feeling. She's always want like the being in the Abbey, being a nun, she didn't fit there either. And she hasn't quite True. fit in her demon being, you know a bird cooped up inside of her. Like Nelly Furtado. She wants to fly away. Uh, she doesn't, she know, doesn't know how to get back home. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. She doesn't know where her soul is yet. Earlier on, when she goes into the trance to read the alethiometer and she asks, how do we get rid of the spies? And they're like, follow the knife, go onward. That is how they get rid of the spies. The spies die. Because mm. they follow the knife. They I waste the rest of their life. I, I, I was like, oh, man, it's so hard not to spoil this, obviously, in the body of everything right now. But yeah. I was just very sad because, like, by the end, the Galavespians do give a shit about these kids and they go all out for them, literally. And they die, like, they let their lives end, which they know they're yeah. going to die, which is what this is all about, right? Like, knowing you're going to die. We all die. That is literally one of the themes of that last chapter there. And the Galavespians know they're going to die. And they end up following Lyra and Will to the end of their world and die. Yeah. For a purpose, yes. not just their usual death, though. Like, at least it's purposeful. We have a lot of that in this in this series. You know, people purposefully, you know, dying for something that they believe in. And I didn't catch that. The, like, the knife says to just follow the knife. Or the, the alethiometer says to just follow the knife. I thought it was just being like, no, you got to keep them because they're going to help you, which they do. And and like I said, that's why it's so weird for me on hindsight, like rereading these chapters more slowly and not just like breezing through them. I'm like, damn, they really like had a lot of animosity for the Galavespians, huh? Because I, 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 my last image of them is like as these like really trusted companions. Now, as we reread it at this pace, I think that's in there especially because it makes the resolve that much more worthwhile, right? Like it makes it when it makes it so sad. It fucking, I'm sad. Very sad about the Galavespians. I am. They risked it all. Definition. Well, because you get like the angels, right? You got the angels and they're sassy and kind of sharp, but they're not like assholes. (laughs) The Galavespians, you get the Galavespians and it's like, oh, this is like World War Three between all four of you every day. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good contrast to the angels in that aspect. Yeah, I mean, they kind of abandoned them. Yeah, right. Angels abandoned them, and the Galavespians don't. They're like, I guess we're going to the underworld with you. Like, that's commitment. To be fair, one of them dies. The The angels? angels. Yeah, that's true. And the other one's so sad about that death that he just disappears. I'd probably abandon the shit out of you, too, if, like... That's true. Out of someone, if you died. I don't know. If someone died, I would abandon. Yeah. Abandon. Capital A, you mentioned the Persephone and the Underworld earlier, and I really didn't even think about them eating food that close to the Underworld, what it would mean, but it did make me think of, along that same thing, the fairy food in the Books of Dust. 
Mm. Yes. So I wonder yes. what I wonder what them eating in the underworld would have done to them. It couldn't have done anything more for Lyra. She's already eaten fairy food. That kid's fucked. But <laughs> there's also like I guess they don't have food. They didn't have food down there. They're just like I don't know. There's fucking nothing down here. It's real sad. <laughs> All we have is this hard rye and cheese from the the apocalypse barn. Yeah, from a long time ago. Uh, and that's what they have to live on, because, yeah, there's nothing in the underworld. They're just sad shit. Not as sad. The image of dust, right? The the shroff. Um, in, and it turning out to be more of light as opposed to shadows or dark matter. Um, I, I just thought it was nice to think about it as this obvious metaphor for learning, because we find out that in order to make more dust, everyone has to keep like living their lives to the fullest and really experiencing things, so... That's it. Yeah, I think that is like the major theme of these three, right? Like Mm -hmm. consciousness and choosing consciousness, I think, is another big thing. Like you look at the state of the victims of the specters that cannot be enveloped in that kind of consciousness anymore after having that taken from them. Yeah. Uh, that, That feels really, really, really relevant through these chapters. And then like, I don't know. Yeah, dust is learning. I like that. I do like that because if we don't keep learning, then what happens to us? Then we'd we, never know. Yeah, we die. Um, eventually, or or it's like that idea, right? You're talking about the specters. It is it like really truly living then? You know that idea of like yes. You might as well be. I guess that is. It seems to be what Philip is if saying. If you're not living. Really. Get busy yeah. living or die <laughs> trying. Sorry, Chloe's holding her snow goose now. My stuffed Kaiser, hell yeah. Yes. But not a real stuffed goose. No, no. Well, I mean, yes, it's real to me. Yeah. But no, no. It's, it's my demon, Eliana. It's my demon. <laughs> oh, not the Tuolipa. Tuolipa. <laughs> not the Tuolipa. <laughs> um, you guys, thanks so much for listening. Thanks for listening, you all. We will be back in 2022 to talk about the Dua Lipa, the famous bird <laughs> of the lands of the Zalith. <laughs> oh yes, thank you, everyone. Um, yeah, thanks for being here this year and hope to see you again next year. We are thankful for you. Hopefully you enjoyed some, I don't know, good turkey Lipa. Not, sorry, tur- turkey loppy. I got confused. <laughs> oh god make sure you cook your turkey loppy thoroughly we don't want any food poisoning cases after turkey day in the states and uh yeah we'll we'll talk to you next year as cheesy as it is and we will get back into the end of the amber spyglass i think we've got five or six episodes left so buckle up buckle up good i'm like not ready for it to be over but yeah i'm gonna miss it i am and i don't think we're gonna We've talked, we're going to give a little break and let our brains kind of reformulate before we jump into the secret commonwealth because, you know, we already, we kind of have jumped around. We did LaBelle, but we need a little break. We'll get to the secret commonwealth post Amber Spyglass at some point and it'll be like we never left our Lyra and Pan. Yeah, Actually, it, it, it will be different. It will yeah, be it'll be different. really different. We'll, we'll have also really the different. show at some point too. And then we can cry about these same chapters all over again, together. (laughs) All over again. (sighs) 
Okay. And, you know, if you have any thoughts, if you would like to tell us about how sad you are or about your turkey leap, turkey loppy, please feel free to find us on social media. You can find us at Girls Gone Canon, C-A-N-O-N, on Twitter, or shoot us an email at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. Yeah, make sure you are subscribed to us on a podcast streaming platform near you, whether that is Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Acast, Stitcher, you name it, we're there. Thanks so much, everyone. And, and of course, uh, you can also find us on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon, where, as we said, we have bonus episodes once a month. And last month was about his dark materials and some of the scary creatures, mystical creatures. Um, And this month's coming out soon will be Nymeria November. And next month will be that change of pace, Song of Achilles. Sad and gay. <laughs> it's you so gotta plug the Discord. Yeah. Hey, come hang out at our Discord. Thunder tier patrons at our Patreon. Hang out all day long, all night long in there. there. There's a lot of crazy shenanigans that happen in there. And sometimes we even do a brunch happy hour that's every month. No date for December yet, but we'll keep you posted. If you're over at our Patreon, you'll get those updates. Thanks so much, as always. Indeed, thanks so much. Uh, cheers, I've been one of your hosts, Eliana. And I am that other one of your hosts, Chloe. We'll talk to you next time. Goodbye.